A man falls in love and goes to great lengths to prove it. And then we travel to Spain to meet a family ready to get away for the weekend. Little do they know what they're getting away to is an alternate reality today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. Just a heads up, you got today's episode, tomorrow's episode, then I'm taking a week off. I take a week off every 50 episodes and I enjoy it very, very much. I've been listening, I've actually gone to my Patreons and asked them for what their favorite episodes of Dead Rabbit Radio have been. And we got five great episodes for reruns next week with brand new intros. I always like to give you guys a little behind the scenes. What happened before the episode, what happened after the episode. It's a really cool look. I think it's a lot of fun for me. And if I was a listener of a podcast, I would want to know that stuff too because I'm a big old nerd. (laughs) I'm a big old nerd about stuff I love. And I hope you guys enjoy all of that as well. Let's give a shout out to one of our legacy Patreons, Gotmaster Gray. Gotmaster, everyone, give a round of applause for this fellow You're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. Whatever vehicle we take, you're in charge of. If you can't support the Patreon, I totally get it. Just help get the word out about the show. That helps out a lot. And I I see you guys. I'll run into you guys in the wild, and you guys will be talking about the show. And I just do a little little smirk, because I see you guys are spreading the word. And that really, really means a lot. Got Master Gray. We're going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. Let's go for a little road trip. Drive us on out. You're basically our chauffeur. We're all sitting in the back smoking big Cuban cigars. He's like, oh, I want a cigar. We're driving. He doesn't get one. We're driving out to La Palma, California. And we get out of the car. We're like tipping. Got Master Gray. We're like, here you go, sir. Keep the meter running. He's like, ah. no, Got Master, come out. We're going to give him a couple cigars. He can smoke for the rest of this story. We're in La Palma, California. It's November 2016. We're going to walk into this office complex. It's just normal people filling out paperwork, sitting in little cubicles. You know, you guys know what these places look like, right? Very drab, very gray. Probably a Kathy calendar on someone's desk. Pretty standard stuff. And there's a young woman sitting there. She's typing, click, 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 typing on her keyboard and stuff like that. And she has a little office, little little cubicle office area. She has like her water bottle, photo of me probably, you know, because who wouldn't? She has tea. She's always drinking tea. She got a little bit of honey, that little honey bear thing. You squirt it out of that little pointed hat on its head. Put a little honey in there, drinking some tea. That's all she does. She types, she drinks tea, she has a water bottle and a photo of me. It's the best workplace ever. But often the shadows, allegedly, <laughs> the rest of this stuff I have to say is alleged because it involves criminal issues, but off skulking in the shadows, the lightning strike, we see a silhouette, a silhouette in the shape of Stevens Millen Castro. He's standing there. It's like, oh, if only I could have her. The woman who's not named because of the complaint. I will call her Janet. (laughs) I don't know what her real name is, but we'll call her Janet. And Steven is sitting there. Wherever he walks, there's a shadow following him. He's like, hello, Janet. My name's Stevens. And they talk and stuff like that. Now, don't don't talk to the silhouette in the corner. But she does. She doesn't actually know where the story's going to go. And... At a certain point, he asks her out. You know, pretty young girl is going to get asked out. And she goes, no, no, I don't want to go out with you. She's 
probably a little more subtle than that because she added in the thing. You know, but we can be friends. We can hang out and stuff like that. Oh, awesome. Let's go check a cheese tomorrow. She's like, okay. I didn't really mean the friends thing either, but at work, we will be cordial towards each other. She thinks that's kind of the end of it, right? But she starts to notice that Stevens is always staring at her. She's making her tea, staring at her. She's making photocopies. He's in the machine. He's staring up at her. She's like, oh. She gets the feeling that he's always watching her. And she goes, this is kind of the way you're supposed to handle it. She goes up to him and she goes, hey, you know, it's kind of creepy. I don't know if she actually used the word creepy, but basically she said, could you please stop staring at me? Like, it's making me feel uncomfortable. Whenever you have these complaints, if you're not in danger, it's best to address it with the person first because they may not be aware of what they're doing. They may they may have some sort of awkward quirk and they go, oh, oh I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, I didn't know that I was actually bugging you. And you just let it, you just let it lie there because some people are doing it accidentally. But she said, hey, can you stop staring at me? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And as she's walking away, he's like, oh, I'm going to stare at you so hard for that comment. He begins staring and just kind of being a nuisance around the workplace. She's addressed it with him and hasn't stopped. She goes to her boss and she goes, hey, listen, he's still kind of harassing me. Like, he's constantly staring at me and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure I saw him inside the photocopy machine the other day. So the boss talks to him and says, hey, got to complain about your behavior. First off, we need to fix the lighting around your office because you just look like a silhouette, a Stevens-shaped silhouette sitting here. Can you leave her alone? Leave Janet alone. I got to complain about it. You need to leave her alone. Now, that is, again, the second step. There's a process to this. Well, some time passes, and she goes back to her boss, and she's like, it's not. It's, It's. If anything, it might be worse. He seems to be, I don't know how it's possible, but he's staring even harder now. He's not staring daggers into my back. They're broadswords. So at this point, the boss has to get HR involved and says, hey, listen, we got this guy staring at this woman. And really, that's all he's doing up to this point. But it's making her feel uncomfortable. So HR has him go to sexual harassment training. Just sit down in a room, you watch a video, and it's like, and then Tom walks into the room and Sally says, don't. What did Tom do wrong? And, you know, it's like a half hour video. It's no big deal. That should have been the end of it. Really, when she said, hey, stop, knock it off, that should have been the end of it. 99% of rational people would be like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know I was staring so much. Then you got the one, you got a bunch of weirdos running around out there, unfortunately. So it had to go up the ladder. She didn't go to HR right away. She didn't make a big muck of it. She did the steps. She talked to him, then she talked to the boss, and then she talked to HR. That should have been the end of it, though. Sexual harassment training, all of this stuff. I'm not saying that that's the cure-all. I'm not saying that you've been in this 30-minute video. You're like, I'm no longer weird. You're running through the streets. You're like, hey, everyone, I'm a totally normal human being now. I don't stare anymore. You're like, what? No, that's not what happened. So one day, what did we name this girl? Janet. One day, Janet goes into her little cubicle, and her water bottle is sitting there. And she's looking at it, and she goes, that's weird. It looks cloudy. You know, normally normally water isn't cloudy. I don't live in Flint, Michigan, right? Normally water should just be see-through. But it's cloudy. She's like, ah, oh. pours it out. She gets rid of it. She didn't really think much of it. A little, little, little pin goes into her brain, but she didn't really think much of it. She pours it out. She has her tea anyways. She drinks her tea. A couple days later, a week later, whatever amount of time passes, uh, she goes into her little cubicle. Her water bottle is cloudy again. Different water bottle, I'm assuming, right? She didn't just empty the water out and goes, this is safe to drink. It's like a, you know, like a plastic bottle of water. She knows, notices it's cloudy again. She's like, oh, great. She starts to get suspicious. 
She tells her boss about his suspicions. She's like, you know, I'm coming into work. I think someone's putting something into my water. Boss is like, okay. <laughs> I'm sure he was probably a little more concerned than that. He's like, well, it's Monday. It's put toxins into people's water day. Don't you know the rules here? He goes, tell you what, you know, because we need, we let's find out if this is what's going on. Let's find out if this is true or if you're just being paranoid or something like that. Again, I don't think he accused her of being paranoid, but let's put a hidden camera up in your little office. So she's sitting there. And she At this point, she's really no longer bringing water to work. I would assume not, at least. She's drinking her tea. She's making her tea there. So she knows that that is safe. And then one day she goes into her office, and there is a milky white substance spread across her keyboard and her mouse. We know what this is, right? <laughs> Any adult would know exactly what this is. And it was probably what she... Sus- she Actually, she probably didn't suspect this was what was in the water bottle. But if you see it live in the wild, you know exactly what it is. She's looking at it. She's, she's not touching it. She has like a little CSI toolkit. She's picking it up. She's touching a little Q-tip to it. She goes to her boss and she goes, We need to review that camera because I'm pretty sure... I'm not a scientist, but I am an adult... I'm pretty sure that's semen on my keyboard. The <laughs> You're running like a call center or something, right? He thought it was weird enough he had to put up a secret camera in this woman's cubicle, and now he's investigating semen deposits, right? He's like, oh, man, it's not even semen Thursday. What, what type of crazy workplace is this? So they start reviewing the video. It's all, they're fast forward and it's just like an empty cubicle. It's nothing. And then they see a movement. And they hit pause. And then they hit play. And they see, in slow, they put in slow motion, they see a slow motion blurry object start, start moving in. It's like paranormal activity. And they see this, this figure take out a, like a tissue. And begin to smear it on the keyboard and the mouse. And then the figure turns very quickly. And then they pause it. Enhance it. You guys, you guys, you guys, they knew who it was. You know who it was. It was Stevens. Stevens was smearing semen on her keyboard and her mouse. The boss is like, well, okay. I, th- we got to involve the authorities. Like, this is this is beyond... <laughs> I wasn't trained for this, right? So the cops come down, and this is what the story is. So, yes. Well, allegedly. Stevens, <laughs> Seaman Stevens, was masturbating in the bathroom. Hopefully, right? <laughs> he was at his cubicle. He was doing it. He was masturbating somewhere on the work premises. He's in the janitor's closet. And then he would take... First, he was putting it in her water bottle. But then when she got rid of the water bottle, he began to smear it on her keyboard and her mouse. And little did she know that this whole time he wasn't just masturbating into her water bottle. Not masturbating into it. That would be a feat of engineering. He was bringing it and dripping it in there. He was also putting it in her honey. So all that time... And she's like, what? That water looks contaminated. It's time for some delicious honey-infused tea. He was masturbating and then putting his semen in her honey. So he is facing um, some serious charges. He actually... Actually, I don't have to say allegedly. He was found guilty. He was actually found guilty. This investigation took a while. 
Even these incidents took a while. So we had 2016, when this initially happened, he was just found guilty, and he's fa- he hasn't been sentenced yet. He's going to be sentenced later this month. His defense, the, the prosecutors, the, the police and the prosecutors were like, this was like a sex crime. Like, this guy was obviously getting off on this. He's jacking off on people's stuff. I wonder if he was doing this to anyone else in the workplace, too. But he's jacking off into people's stuff. He, this was a sex crime. Now, his defense was like, your honor. Yes, our client is a big old, <laughs> is a big old weirdo, right? Total weirdo. He's using his own bodily fluids to get back at somebody for rejecting him. However, it wasn't sexual. It was not sexual. And the judge probably raised his eyebrow and goes, explain to me this avenue of defense. What do you mean masturbating is not sexual? And they go, this wasn't sexual, your honor. This was simply petty revenge. You see, he was afraid he wouldn't get the promotion because he had been reported to HR for sexual harassment. He was afraid he was up for a promotion. And he would have gotten that promotion, (laughs) sir. He would have totally gotten that promotion. But just because he was staring at somebody (laughs) multiple times, was told to stop, wouldn't stop. That is why he got mad. He was afraid he wouldn't get promoted, or he would get fired for being a big old weirdo. So he wasn't masturbating for sexual release. No, Your Honor. He was masturbating... For revenge. Imagine Charles Bronson in Death Wish, but instead of shooting gang members, and the judge is like, okay, okay, I've heard enough. I've heard, you're not going to ruin the movie Death Wish for me, because that's my favorite movie. That's why I became a judge in the first place. It was this, or shoot criminals in the street. So, that didn't work. <laughs> that didn't work, obviously. That's a terrible defense. He's facing two and a half years in prison. It's funny, I've been watching a ton of true crime stuff lately. A ton of it, and I hadn't been watching it for a long time, and I've really been watching a lot of it. And I'm constantly amazed at how people do stupid stuff and then get thrown in prison. I don't understand. I mean, okay, I used to do stupid stuff too, but I didn't. Well, one, I didn't get caught. <laughs> I never got caught doing it. That's the key component. And two, I would. You'd always. It was always a cost-benefit analysis thing, right? Like, sure, I could engage in a fistfight with this person. How likely is it that this person's going to call the cops? They're punching me. They're punching me over and over again. I'm like, hmm, let me think. Should I punch this guy back? Let me see. If I punch this guy in the kidney, you know, it's it won't kill him, right? It'll just hurt a lot, and the fight will be over. And if I punch him multiple times in the liver, then it'll be over even sooner. At this point, they're kicking me. I'm like, hmm, but now I'm weighing the cons. You have to do a cost-benefits analysis with this stuff. This guy, what was his end game? What was he thinking? Like, before I go and smash someone's car up with a baseball bat at 4 a.m., I think. Does this person know any police officers? Is this person a police officer? Am I at a police station? Is this a police car? You think. Does this person have a lot of money? Does this person know anyone in a gang? Is there any way that I will get any blowback from this act? If yes then really think a lot about it. If no, <laughs> just start smashing. And you have to do that. So, again, I'm not a sex criminal, so I don't get that. I mean, maybe he was driven by some other force. I was just driven by wanting to smash things up real good. So I don't get it. This That type of stuff is totally alien to me. But he had to carry this on. I mean, if he did it once, it's still awful, but he could have just done it once and never got caught. He kept escalating it. He kept, And that's what makes me think is it was a sex crime. He kept escalating it. 
So don't be a big old sicko. But if you're just like an average criminal, if you're like picking locks, breaking into, you can break into a shed, you'll be fine. <laughs> Do not take legal advice from me. But breaking into a shed is a lot different than breaking into an occupied house or a bank, which is federal. I don't know if I've ever told this story before, but I used to hang out with this dude who used to knock over liquor stores. And he told me he did time for that. He did seven years for robbing liquor stores. But this is back in the 80, 80s when he was doing this stuff. He said, he goes, he knew these dudes who used to knock over check cashing stores. And the way that they did that, <laughs> I'm going to give you a bit of tip here. I know this, this segment's running long, but the way that they did that was one guy would hold the door open. You know, the cash checking store, check cashing stores have all that bulletproof glass. He goes, bulletproof glass is used to stop small arms, like pistols. He goes, AK-47 will tear right through most uh, bulletproof glass. It's just not built for it. But he goes, it's built to protect you from gunfire, but it's not built to protect you from a sledgehammer. So one guy would hold the door open. Imagine you're working at a check cashing place. (laughs) Got Master Gray. Let's hop in the Jason Jalopy and go cash our checks. We're sitting in there and the door, some guy holds the door open and then someone else runs in top speed holding a sledgehammer, and they would smash the sledgehammer against the bulletproof glass. And he said the entire structure would disintegrate. He goes, "You, it was getting hit with so much force. It wasn't designed for this. It would just shatter. And he goes, everyone, now I'm thinking about it, maybe, maybe he did this because he was quite detailed about it. He goes, everyone would think a bomb went off. It was so loud. Imagine you're sitting there, you have your back turned, you're typing something in, or you're reading a magazine. All of a sudden, you hear a Boom! And just glass shatters. Not even real glass, but... He goes, they would jump over, rob the place, and get out like in a minute or two. Super, super fast, efficient robbery. He goes, they were doing this all over the state. It was like Northern California they were doing this stuff. One day they go, hey, you know, we're making a lot of money hitting these check cashing places, but I bet you we can hit a ton of money hitting a bank. And they ran into a bank. I don't know if they did the sledgehammer trick in there. They're all waiting in line. The music, dude. He's holding a sledgehammer. I don't know if they did it there, but they robbed a bank within a half hour. They were both caught and they ended up doing like 10, 15 years in federal prison. Check cat. This is the cost benefit analysis. Check cashing places are not federally insured. It was a local police crime. Banks are federally insured. So the FBI is on the case in minutes. You got federal officers looking for you. He goes, within a half hour, they were caught. Before it was just. Cops were looking for him, but they couldn't find him. And they're just like, oh, I guess, <laughs> I guess that check cashing place just lost a bunch of money. Cost benefit analysis. Really, the best cost is don't commit crime at all. Even young Jason knows better. So I'm not out beating people up anymore. <laughs> Do you like that pause there? Got Master Gray. Let's go ahead and hop in that carpenter copter. We are headed out to Barcelona, Spain. <laughs> We got a fight club going on in the back of the helicopter. Got Master Gray puts it on autopilot. We're boxing. Uh, we're boxing. The helicopter lands. We're all bruised. We're all beat up. We're all jumping off the carboner copter. We're in Barcelona, Spain. It's Easter week. We're in the month of April, 1976. This is actually a perfect story for the carboner copter because we landed an airport. This actually takes place at Pratt Airport. And here we're going to meet a very well-to-do couple. They're getting ready to go on a vacation to the island of Mall Orca. So we'll call the dad, Joseph, the mother, Samantha. And then they have a nanny. We'll call her Margarita. Is that a name? Is that a name? Or is that just a drink? 
We'll call her Margarita, and then they have a little baby, little toddler, and we'll call her Jonesy. So, I forgot forgot the dad's name, it doesn't matter. The the dad goes, honey, uh, Samantha, you stay here with the nanny and and little Jonesy. I'm going to go buy the tickets. You stay in this waiting area. And the wife's like, okay, yeah, go ahead, honey. So the husband walks off and buys the tickets. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty busy weekend. And as he's walking back to the waiting area, he sees his wife just sitting there reading a magazine. Doesn't see the nanny or their baby girl. Hey, where'd the nanny go? He tells us. He's <laughs> very, very brusque with his wife. Yes, his wife. I, you know, I got the tickets. Where's Margarita and Jonesy? And wife's like, what? They're, they're right. And she's looking around on the bench and they're gone. She goes, she was sitting right here just like a minute ago. Like, literally, a minute ago, like, I didn't even see her leave. And the dad is like, it's kind of bizarre. But the the wife's like, she must have just gone to the restroom. Like, it couldn't have really been anything. You don't really think anything in these first initial moments. But a little bit of time passes, and the father goes, you know what, we need to check the bathroom. Can you go in and check the bathroom? So the mother goes in, Jonesy! Margarita! People are going to the bathroom. They're like, ma'am, can I have some privacy? Just yelling out names. They're not in the bathroom. Now, at this point, she's starting to get panicked. At this point, any parent would get panicked. They walk up to airport security and they go, hey, listen, our daughter's missing. The last time she was seen was with our nanny. And we know her fairly well, but we're really, really concerned because they just disappeared. They're not here at all. So airport security starts looking around for them. They start calling over the PA. Will Margarita and Jonesy please come up to gate A? Margarita and Jonesy, please come up to gate A. More time passes. Now, this couple was very well off. So when they start to panic and they start to push on security, they're literally pushing them. They're like, where's my kid? Huh? Where's my kid? Security's like, hey, stop it. Stop it. Pushing them. They begin to basically say, you need to stop this airport. You need to ground all the flights because I need to know where my daughter is and the nanny. It's always a secondary concern because you really want your kid. The airport actually goes to the extraordinary measure of halting all flights. Now, I'm sure it was just all flights out. I don't think there was a plane circling overhead. They're like, listen, the missing kid's not over here. We're from France and the... Uh, air traffic control's like, listen, we can't take any chances. Planes are running out of fuel. I'm pretty sure planes are still allowed to land, but they weren't letting planes go up. Crowd gathers. Everyone's looking for this kid now because basically either you're concerned for the kid or you really want to get to your destination. So everyone's looking for this kid now. And eventually a giant group of people kind of surround the mother, consoling her. That's probably all they were doing. <laughs> They were like, so, did you watch television last night? What did you think of One Day at a Time? Oh, that Schneider, he's so funny. What a crack up. She's like, no, I did not watch television last night. Eventually, this old woman walks out of the crowd, and she walks right up to the grieving mother and says, just, just pray for your daughter to return. That's not a bizarre thing to say when someone's grieving, you know, just pray, you know, God will help you, things like that. Something about it strikes the grieving mother in a weird way. And when she turns to talk to the old lady, the old lady has now walked into the crowd and has vanished. She's not there. And then the mother, Samantha, turns back to the bench where she had previously been sitting with the nanny. And sitting there on the bench is the nanny holding little Jonesy. The mom freaks out. 
She has this mixture of joy and just being really pissed off. She found her daughter, but she can't figure out what led to the sequence of events, and she starts kind of tearing into the nanny, and the nanny is puzzled. She goes, wait, 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 what are you talking about? And they're like, you disappeared. The father shows up. You dis- Where were you? You disappeared. Everyone's getting back in lines. The planes are going to be able to take off now. You disappeared. We shut down the whole airport looking for Jonesy. Nanny goes, I was sitting here the whole time. I never got up. I was sitting here the whole time. And, and I have no idea what's going on. Now, now at a certain point, you, you do want to question the sequence of events. But at the end of the day, you have your child back. You can figure out the rest later. So the mom goes to take her child into her arms. The baby's totally calm. Wasn't freaking out or nothing about all this. The mom goes to pick up the little Jonesy. And the nanny won't let go of the kid. Now the mom's getting really pissed off. Give me my kid. Give me my kid. And the nanny goes, I can't. I can't. And her hands are open. This toddler is laying in her arms. She's not gripping it or holding it in any tight fashion. She's stuck to the nanny. The mother continues to pull and pull and pull. She's sobbing at this point. I mean, like, now you got a whole new other set of circumstances you have to deal with. The dad goes, enough. This Enough of this. And he goes to get his daughter out of the nanny's arms. The daughter's stuck. He finally is able to get a good enough grip on little Jonesy. And imagine put one of his foot on the bench that they're sitting on and pull Jonesy. Literally tear her from the nanny's arms because they say, because the report said, that where her arms didn't have any clothing, so her bare forearms were holding on to Jonesy, there were red marks on her arms. As if someone had peeled off thin layer of flesh. Like a burn. For whatever reason. I think that should be the end of the holiday, right? That should be the end of it. They decide, listen, we have Jonesy back. Sorry that you have that weird alien third degree burn on your arm. We are going to go to Barcelona. We're going to go. The planes are flying again. They get on their flight and everything's totally normal. Plane takes off. Little Jonesy's doing little Jonesy stuff. About halfway through the flight, the nanny... She's making ambulance noises. She's freaking out is what she's doing. I couldn't really portray that as well as I wanted to. She's freaking out. Now, not just like she's moaning and making ambulance noises, to the point that stewardesses have to try to calm her down when that doesn't work. They have to physically restrain her. She's fighting against them. And they're holding her down. They've doing that all the way to Barcelona. They don't turn the plane around. This is 1976. It'd be a totally different story nowadays. They'd probably just shoot her. Have some air marshal put a bullet on the back of her head. They land the plane. And she is... the, the that, At that point, the dad's like, okay, vacation's over. Like, I don't know what happened with Jonesy and the nanny. But that was, that was, the, that was the icing on the cake. The nanny freaking out. So they actually get on another air. They sedate the nanny. They get on another airplane and they head back home to Barcelona. Where they put the nanny in a hospital and they continue to sedate her. And at a certain point, doctors want to figure out what's going on. You have two mysteries here. One, you have the mystery that she vanished into thin air and then reappeared and said nothing happened. The doctors don't really care about that. I'm sure they were curious. I'm sure they told their loved ones. Now sit here on my knee, kid, and hear about the day the nanny disappeared. But they're there to cure whatever's going on now, which is her hysteria. 
she doesn't remember what happened on the plane. People are like, you you went crazy on the plane. She's like, what? I don't remember that. I don't remember anything, really. I don't remember disappearing. I think they're making that up. I was sitting there the whole time, and now they're saying I'm going crazy on a plane. I don't remember that. She undergoes hypnosis. This is what she remembers on the plane. She said she's sitting there next to her bosses, the father and the mother. She's sitting there, and she hears a voice in her head. Come here. Come over here, Imad. Come on. She's looking around. Come here, Imad. Come to me, Imad. What she described was, quote, an unpleasant sounding male voice summoning her. She said, while this is going on, she goes, no one else was reacting to this voice. She's just sitting there. She feels herself getting panicked. She's hearing clearly this voice, this unpleasant sounding male voice. It's Stevens from the first story. He's sitting behind her. Want some honey? He's like, she's like, what? She says that she's sitting on the plane. She's hearing this voice. And then on the floorboard of the plane, she sees a little light appear. This red light. glowing on the floor of the plane. And doctor goes, well, okay, then, then what do you remember? And Margarita's under hypnosis and she's laying there. <gasps> she starts screaming, goes into hysterics. And they have to end the hypnosis session. Every time they try to press her to remember something beyond the red light appearing in the plane, she became hysterical, and they had to shut the session down. This story came from a book written by Antonio Ribera. He's considered the father of Spanish UFOlogy. This is from a book called Secrestados por Extraterrestrias, or in English, Kidnapped by Extraterrestrials. It's possible, I, I think, in 1976, or I think he wrote this book in the 80s, but I think when you didn't have a lot of different layers of the paranormal, if you only had to put stuff under, like, religious miracle, demonic, UFOs, or cryptids, out of those four categories, the UFO would be the one that would fit. But I think we have such a more broad understanding of the paranormal world that this seems like a time slip, Mandela affect alternate reality event where she actually went somewhere where the wife was just sitting on the bench next to her and they were waiting for the dad to come back with tickets and everything was going fine and she slipped into that reality out of our own in our reality she just disappeared as far as how that plays with the red light was she being summoned back to that reality who knows the thing I like about this story, and it's something that I talk about a lot on this show, but I can almost not talk enough about it, is that it's going to make you paranoid, but we have this idea that there are times we are safe, and there are times that we are not. Spooky, spooky graveyard, not safe. Sitting at home watching television with your family, safe. But the world of the paranormal, there is no safe. We are taught rules that are supposed to keep us safe. But think about it. A demon that is older than the universe, a demon that existed before God created reality, can be stopped by a circle of salt on the ground. 
or that you can take sage, you can take an herb that evolved on the planet Earth, that, that's somehow going to protect you from something that fought angels in the war against heaven. That new God that probably was like, hey, dude, what's up? Remember me? Like, I used to be one of your angels, and now I'm a demon. Your herb that you can buy at the witch store is going to protect you from something that's older than time itself. It, it doesn't make sense. We're constantly taught these things about being safe. All these stories we talk about aliens abducting people late at night, we've covered stories where people have been abducted in the middle of the day. This woman was sitting at an airport surrounded by hundreds of people, hundreds of witnesses, sitting right next to somebody, and she vanished. Assuming this story is true, right? Assuming this just isn't a work of fiction. Assuming all of this stuff is true. She simply vanished in front of everybody. The world of the paranormal... It's not normal. The word itself is next to normal. So normal rules don't apply. I know that my door will keep out bad elements, bad physical elements. And so we go, well, I'm making a door of salt to keep out these evil spirits. It's not the same. It is 100% not the same. If a ghost can float through a door, why can't it float through salt? What about all the sodium in my body, right? Demons still possessing people. You're not safe. When we talk about the world of the paranormal, when we talk about these extraordinary events, broad daylight, alien abductions, kids playing in their backyard, attacked by multiple aliens. We covered that story. The Casablanca invasion. Kids playing soccer in a park in the Soviet Union, attacked by robots. It was like five in the afternoon. It doesn't matter who you're around. It doesn't matter how safe you feel. If the paranormal world wants to muck your reality up, it will. And it could be a fluke. You could happen to just walk through a portal and end up somewhere that you don't want to be. But the fact that the red light in the voice was calling to her at the end makes me think that this was intentional. An obscure story, almost forgotten. I had never heard of this story before in 30 years of research. This happened the year I was born. Never, ever heard this story before. This, this story, I think, should be up there with the man from Torred. But it's forgotten. It's not talked about at all. But it being obscure doesn't make it any less frightening. Actually, it makes it more frightening. Because you wonder how many other stories are out there like this that we don't know about. Or that we never had the opportunity to hear about. Because the only witness was the one who simply vanished. The world of the paranormal is not your friend. It's as friendly as a hurricane or a pack of wild chimpanzees. We study this stuff. We have fun looking into it. It's creepy stories to tell ourselves and tell others, and we get little willies. But it's swimming with sharks. It is swimming with sharks. And the creepy thing about the world of the paranormal is I can avoid hurricanes. I can avoid wild chimpanzees. I can avoid serial killers and grizzly bears and avalanches. But you can't avoid this. It gets you if it wants you. It can get you in your bed at night. It can crawl out of the backseat of your car. It can chase you as you're jogging down the street. And it can snatch you up when you're sitting in a room of a hundred witnesses. And your story may not have the quote-unquote happy ending of simply reappearing and going hysterical. 
your story may end with you never being seen again. And although people would always try to find a rational reason for your disappearance, some would know the truth. Some of us know that the world of the paranormal is vicious, it's violent, and it's always looking for another victim. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.